Hello, I'm John Kelly and this is a podcast of Mystery Train. For rights reasons, the music is shorter than in the original programme. Mystery Train hits the rails Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on RTE Lyric FM. This is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM until nine o'clock. The Sunday night special. This is the night we get someone in to pick the tunes for us. And I'm delighted to say that tonight we have the American composer William Brittell who's with me in studio. William, good to have you here. Great to be here. William, I've been aware of you for a long time and yet I never thought we'd get you here for two hours because, I mean, you're based in Brooklyn, really, aren't you? Still still in Brooklyn. Hanging on to the very very edge of Ireland, yeah. Is, 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 is Brooklyn still a viable prospect or are people getting pushed further? And I would further say it on? is not at this point unless you've sort of been there and figured out a way to wiggle your in a, way in a little corner. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think there's still a lot of really talented people there and there are certainly uh, a lot of people that think about music in different and cool ways, less yeah. structured ways, which is great. Uh, but you're from North Carolina. Yeah. Which, you know, and I don't mean to stereotype North Carolina, but it sounds like the last place in the world that someone whose music, and we hear your music tonight, that North Carolina wouldn't produce someone like you. Yeah, well, I think especially there there are a couple uh, cities in North Carolina, sort of, you know, whenever you have these vast swaths of conservatism, mm. the, the liberal areas tend to be... Um, pretty dramatically liberal, but where I grew up was extremely conservative. Um, so where, where did you grow up exactly? Uh, sort of in between Charlotte and Asheville. So, you right. know, you kind of have the the beach, the flatlands, and the mountains, and I grew up on the, the bottom the bottom of the mountain. Yeah. Kind of. Because um, the music that I know from that part of the world, it's all sorts of stuff, like hollering. And this, you know. Yeah, and there were certainly, you know, I remember going to hear Bluegrass on the weekends. And, yeah. I mean, you know, I was also uh, experienced there's also a really strong classical community there. Weirdly, a Suzuki program that was sort yeah. of randomly there in that town. Um, and then there was a lot of hair metal and, you know, that... Uh, but it was... I mean, until MTV came along, it was really sort of dome culture. You know, it was church and school and sports and that was pretty much it. Yeah. And MTV, you know, people who didn't live through that era often, you know, don't realise how effective and how, how much change was brought about by MTV. Oh, it completely changed my life. And I, I remember, especially um, what happened to metal, you know, you had sort of this dirty New York glam thing happening that just morphed into what was essentially this middle America music and had all of these it, it kind of targeted misogyny and, 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 uh, and, and um, this, it was, it was, wonderfully charmingly transgressive for a 12 or 13 or 14 year old boy to encounter because they have these you know there was satanistic icon iconography what is the word iconography iconography um 
And then you know you had these beautiful men dressed like women. It was all really confusing and yeah. subversive. And and and, and the, vi the the videos. And this was the thing about MTV, to accompany this uh, often quite ridiculous. Oh yeah, music. Um, there were a lot of sort of sort of sort of soft porn kind of stuff going on. There were lots lots of women in women in, 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 in lingerie yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in the videos, and that's why I'm slightly astonished. Not just because of your your own musical um, uh, output, which we'll be talking about later, and your work with uh, orchestras and all the rest, but that your first choice is actually Whitesnake. Yeah, well, that uh, that. This particular song is the first song that I ever owned. And when I, I don't know, maybe I was about 10 or 11 and I got my first stereo and I put uh, this, it was just a single of the song on. And this is before I had seen it on MTV. Or I had no, yeah. I, I didn't have any idea what this music looked like. And that first chord came in and it felt like a descent into this whole other world of forbidden pleasure. And, you know, I think I think part of it is that hair metal to me, um, well, a all the singers were great, b all the guitars were great, c every ballad had a shredding guitar solo. No matter, like you could yeah. just rely that that was that was going to happen yeah. no matter what, um, and it was reflective of this world of that I grew up in where you wanted to date the head cheerleader and you wanted to be the quarterback on the football team. It was very simple. There was a God there that you could either go along with or go against. Yeah. Everything was black and white and binary. And I think as I've gotten older, um, I started sort of longing for that, for a return to some kind of binary system because adulthood is pretty complicated, especially <laughs> in, in New York as a, as an independent artist. Yeah. Um, it feels like there are no clear lines. Everything's just nebulous. So this is White Snake in the sort of 1980s period. Yeah, I think this was actually there for even before here. Here I go again. I think this was actually because that was maybe huge on MTV. Wasn't that, it? Yeah, and yeah, that was the video for this actually is is so beautiful because it's this really cheap set with smoke screens and stuff, and then this cheap apartment with a, a woman that just kind of dancing randomly the entire time. But there's like these fake stones and stuff. You know, it's really it's really amazing. <laughs> I can't believe we're it's talking really about amazing. this. Here it is. It's been a while. That was indeed White Snake from the 80s and uh, a song called Is This Love, the first choice of the uh, great American composer, William Brown. <laughs> Bringing sophistication <laughs> yeah. to no, over, but, the, over but, the pond. But, but there's, there's an, you're, you're quite right to say that. It's, tr it's true of people in Ireland too, you know, uh, uh, you know of, of, of exactly your vintage. They'll say, they'll say they listened to X, Y and Z growing up, but the reality would have been, you know, White Snake and Motley Crue. Def Leppard, yeah. Def, Def Leppard in particular. Yeah, were, absolutely. And I think they were even bigger in America than they I remember being in, in uh, grad school and studying Xenakis and, you know, all the extended technique music and driving around in my car and Photograph by Def Leppard came on and I just started to cry and I'm like, there's, there's something in there. I don't want to make this song over again, but there's something in this that belongs in what I'm doing that I'm denying that I have to find a way to get this in there too somehow but what about if i was to make the accusation about that song you just played which is 
perfectly made and brilliantly designed to be a hit and all the rest mm. of it. Um, you know you know exactly what's going to happen next right. at every single point. Um, and that's not really, I don't think, what I'm looking for in music anymore. Sure. I like to be surprised. You yeah. know? Um, and yet, we both said the same thing when that was playing. It's a bit like putting on a warm coat. I think the reason I like it is not because I think it's good. It's bec- it's more like family. It's more that I listen to it at at a really formative point yeah. in my life, and I have a nostalgic relationship to it. And I feel things, and I feel like I'm playing Metroid on Nintendo, listening to this, thinking about sex without understanding it. You know, it it's. I, I can't divest it from that situation. Yeah, yeah. And I think people that say that they don't listen to music that way it's are lying about what's on oh, their yeah. iPhones, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and the interesting thing, I think in particular, is that that's part of what you do now, even though that might not be immediately evident to anybody who's aware of your output. Well, in, in this case, with the song we're going to listen to next, it probably is since I completely ripped off the opening of... <laughs> Again, when you consider that the world that you operate in is, I don't know what it's called in America. Is it called new music? Is it called new classical? Is it called what? I All of that. I, for a little while, people are saying indie classical, and I'm glad that's going away. Mm. But um, yeah, I guess new. I mean, I think the thing that people call it now is like genre fluid yeah. classical, which doesn't make sense. Sort of like self defeating, yeah. but. Yeah. Like orchestras with guitars in them. Yeah, but this, sense, but, yeah. but the but the kind of guitars you will have in them would be more likely to be Bryce Desner than than Angus Young or Eddie. Usually, Hill yeah, I think there. in my case it would be more like a, a shredder guitarist. Well, but yeah, thinning, I think yeah. generally, yeah. yeah, it's quieter. Not that Bryce is playing is quiet, but yeah, more textural. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, so this track you're going to play is called Forbidden Colors. Mm-hmm. This is from Spiritual America. Correct. Now, tell me just a little bit about it before we hear it, because for some people, this may be the first time they've heard your music. And um, and and also, um, you should repeat the fact that you've ripped it off from the White Snake song that we just heard. Yeah. So this 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 track uh, from this record that I r- released um, about a month ago, a little more than a month ago, um, the whole record is is about nostalgia and sort of dealing with you know I grew up in 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 North Carolina as we said in a very religious environment and then at at some point I just completely turned my back on that, moved to New York and spent my life kind of defining myself against that upbringing and. I, you know, as I got closer to 40, I started to feel like that there was, uh, to go through kind of an existential, I don't know if breakdown's the right word, but crises, feeling like I had completely cut off parts of myself. Mm. And I think that was exacerbated as, as the Trump stuff started to happen. And, um, you know, recognizing that I grew up in an environment where I was homophobic and racist and all these things without without really understanding what, what that meant or understanding the moral implications of that so for me the record was a way to work through all that and and there's a narrative that i'll probably get into later that has to do with like getting a trans am and driving <laughs> back down um but in in this case this particular particular case with the song actually deals there's references to to hair metal in there um and uh sort of like looking directly at nostalgia and the role that nostalgia plays when you know it's sort of like when the the flow in between who you were and who you are gets broken, this sort of like forbidden nostalgia lurks there, and and you don't 
you can develop almost an unhealthy relationship with it, which is what I found when I was just driving around listening to hair metal over and over for a few months. And I said, you know, something, something is off. <laughs> yeah. Forbidden colors. Naked ghosts cry out in ocean waves Off TV fuzz on channel 17 Men with makeup dressed And that's called Forbidden Colours from uh, William Brattell from his album Spiritual America. William will be part of the Sons from the Safe Harbour event in Cork and we'll give you the full details of that a little bit later on in the programme. William is with me tonight in the studio um, all the way from, from uh, Brooklyn via North Carolina, picking all the tunes tonight. So far we've had uh, Whitesnake and, uh, and one of his own Forbidden Colours. What you were talking about there, William, about you know dealing with the reality of what it was like growing up in North Carolina... And the reality was MTV and hair metal and all the rest of it. And obviously the conservatism of the, the society there and the, the views that you would have inherited without thinking about. Mm-hmm. And then you addressed all of those things. But then you got into this situation of trying to look, look back again and see what, how, what all that meant. I think that would, make, that would resonate with anybody in Ireland listening who's your mm. age as well or my age um, of... You know, my world is completely different from my parents' world in ways that would probably be quite unthinkable to them. Yeah. Well, there's there's a line. Uh, one of the things that I was doing as I was... Th- this album was sort of like... It took me seven years to write, and I was simultaneously sort of dealing with, as I said, this sort of existential crisis. <laughs> it was kind of one and the same, I guess. And one, one of the things I would do is 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 talk into my iPhone and leave myself these notes or try to talk out. And and I took a clip of one of those uh, conversations I had with myself where I say, you're a part of me, you're a part of me, talking about these aspects of my upbringing where you kind of go back and forth on it and, and you feel this like self-hatred. But I think that the thing is like... Um, those things are in there, mm. you know, it, the, the things that, that seep in deep, whether or not they're true or not, or you believe them to be true does not change their existence or whether yeah. or not they have to be reckoned with. Yeah. And you do, you know, if you go to a certain type of school, you, you're, you're handed certain beliefs on, on a plate, mm-hmm. you'd, you'd take them for granted because they're presented to you in such a way yeah. that there's no argument, really. No. You know. Especially if it's in an environment without media. I mean, it's so different, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I didn't have... I didn't have a, a computer until my freshman year of college, you know. So it, I feel like I I grew up under a very secure dome, <laughs> mm. you know. So um, unchallenged, exactly. And yeah. what happened when you first moved away from home? Did you find were those challenges immediate? <laughs> did you meet? Or did you hang around with people from your own? Well, place it was or? first. It was yeah. I, it was like four months of extreme guilt and then like a lot of cigarette smoking and drinking and like you know it was like when the dam broke it was just kind of (laughs) all hell broke loose for a while (laughs) and when you left when you left home was that to study music uh well the last two years i i'm uh of of high school i guess secondary school Mm -hmm. here um i went to a public school in upstate new york because my family moved and that was sort of like that was a big wake up call. Like I had never been in an environment that wasn't overtly homophobic or overtly racist. And and that wasn't where, and that had, I mean, I met my first Jewish person, you know, I met my second Catholic person. I met 
my first Asian person. You know, it's like very. Uh, what, what age were you then? 16, yeah. 17. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it was it, it it was really hard. It was also the first time I ever saw a, a girl wear a cap. You know, there were all, like all these things, uh, you know, because beauty where I grew up, beauty pageants were big. Yeah. That was really. Um, so I was really thrown by uh, girls not wearing makeup. And I, it was just like, why do they just yeah. look like boys? What is it? You know? Yeah. Um, so there, there was a couple of years of, of uh, turmoil. And then that led pretty quickly into me figuring out that I could just like things that were really weird. And that would be a way to find my own zone that there were all these options ways to inhabit the world that based on being interested in things that other people found intimidating or something okay and, and, and you've got one of tricks pointing ever here mm -hmm. you worked with him haven't you yep and uh what are you going to what what this is a track called uh, child soldier um and this is uh, this doesn't involve you though this one this recording doesn't i ha i did do um a string orchestra version of this yeah. uh, live but um uh, I think uh, Daniel O'Patton is, for my money, you know, when the when the sun goes down on this generation, he's he's one of the most important composers we have. Yeah. I think he's he's changed the way that I think about music, and this um, this piece to me, um, it's one of those pieces that work work on a couple different levels. And he told me, you know, when we were talking about this piece when we met together. That he was envisioning these kids coming over from Africa that were child soldiers, then sitting down and playing our video games that sort of like reenact that. So it's really beautiful. And yeah. there's these incredible string patches and these samples of a, a children's chorus alongside these sounds of laser guns and everything. And some of it is music, quote unquote, some isn't, but it all fits together in this really incredible texture. Child Soldier from One of Tricks Point Never, the choice of William Brittell, who's with me in studio. William, I'd be keen to uh, to get to, to go through your musical sort of education as such to see how you got from that point to to being to working and, and enjoying and being into this kind of music that you've just played. As you say, your own music is, to use that term, um, genre fluid. So you embrace all sorts of music. But I'd, I'd like to know how you got to that point. Presumably, when you started your lessons, what, what was was it? Was it piano? Was it a classic? Yeah, a classical yeah. piano. So were you were you Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, and all the rest? Yeah, of it? Ab absolutely. Yeah, and I I got into playing. Um, competitive piano it's this is by north carolina standards competitive but um you know once i discovered chopin and wc and scriabin and rachmaninoff um that you know that, that was almost like rock music to me or there was something forbidden about how effusive mm. the emotion in it was um but then then i kind of gradually discovered jazz and and a, as i was Playing as I was playing Chopin and WC, I started to want to write also, but it was something that I did that was very secretive that I mainly did for myself that I didn't want to share. Um, and do you still like Chopin and Scriabin? I would say that my relationship with Chopin is very similar to my relationship with Whitesnake, where yeah. you know it's a it's a it's a warm coat. Yeah, 
Debussy is different. Yeah. Debussy and Ravel are different. Yeah, and then Scriabin is different again because he, he, I mean, he certainly went out there. He, 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 he got was, in he a was bad a, mood a lot. Yeah, yeah he, he's. <laughs> He was off his head. I he, think. he was. Yeah. He was. Yeah, I got to be in the right mood. And then I really got into uh, the second Vini's stuff, Berg especially. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I love, I love, I love Berg's music. Um, Webern some, and then sort of segueing into, I kind of started on on the the free out. Uh, end of jazz and work my way back to mm-hmm. Billie Holiday and stuff. But, it, you know, when I was in school, I, I really wanted to explore this idea of there being these forbidden worlds. You know, I kept on wanting something more dissonant or more free or stranger, more extended techniques. Um, and were you on your own in that pursuit? Were you, had you any pals who would uh, go there with you? Sort of. I mean, I'd say if I arrived into school with a record by Alban Berg, you know, there wouldn't have been too many takers for it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, music the music school, universities um, in the States, I mean, there's usually a couple, there's usually, it basically you just got to find the smoking veranda. And usually the people at the smoking veranda are also like Berg. That's kind of, the, <laughs> okay, that's yeah. like the Venn diagram, I, I think. I not know that, <laughs> but I know, what, I know where I'm going later. There's always somebody that you know, isn't down with everything that's going on yeah. and figures out a way to snub their nose out to, at it. But um, And yet when you were, as you know, your musical education probably means that you, you there's a regimented way you're being taught and, you're mm-hmm. being, you know, you have to do certain exercises and so on. You're probably starting to strain at the leash then. You wanted to do well, something Well, I actually else. loved music theory. I mean, I my professor told me after getting in that I got the worst grade on any theory uh, on the theory entrance exam of any composer they had let in mainly because I was largely self-taught in terms of writing Um, but I really fell in love with music theory because it was sort of like gave me a way to structure what I had always thought about and it was a way to stretch what I was doing and I always had this like deep itch to try to do certain things that felt like they were just beyond my reach and by really developing an understanding of music theory and then that extended to uh Studying with Mike Longo, who was a pianist and arranger for Dizzy Gillespie. He worked with Dizzy Gillespie. Yeah, and uh, I spent that, a few years working that, with him. Was that to do with your? Was that part of your education? No, that, that was separate? just me. I mean, I ended up actually dropping out of grad school and then re-enrolling as as non-matriculating student, just studying with who I wanted to study with. Probably it was not a great decision. It wasn't a great financial decision, <laughs> but yeah. but I I just wanted to feel like it was something that I was doing for me to get better, and I would rather drop out and get a job and and then write the music I wanted to write and feel like I wasn't responding either that I wasn't trying to make anybody happy or piss anybody off. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was just tired of feeling that constant flux. But you you learned how to write and you learned how to read and you learned all of that. I did. I think I learned more from orchestration, though. The last the last seven or so years, I, I got hired by Seattle Symphony to write a requiem for Kurt Cobain for orchestra, and that sort of set yeah, off. But how, how early though? I mean, I mean this was like on the basis of what, if you know what I mean? Uh, that that was the this record that I did called Tel- Television Landscape, mm. which was the first kind of big thing that I tried to do. And it had some strings on it. I think they overestimated my ability, <laughs> to be honest with you. I think they were, but you know, this is like the this is the early days of orchestras allowing guitars and other things to yeah. be on stage. Um, so I think the fact that there were strings on my record made them. Okay. And I had I had done some. I had written a piece called Michael Jackson that that uh, that some members of the orchestra had programmed earlier okay. that I think they liked. Um, so you embraced this challenge with I, I I crashed and burned, but I did embrace it. Um, if anybody ever is wondering if they should 
put two unison drum kits in an orchestra piece where no one else is mic the answer is no okay yeah um, that's your handy tip for yeah. tonight folks. but yeah. but that sort of led to a lot of a, I, I wrote hours and hours of orchestra music and i learned i mean i did basically didn't learn anything about orchestration in school that was that was actually yeah. useful well what about mike longo then who worked with dizzy gillespie yeah that, that was more jazz voice leading and that that like i think my entire sense of harmony extended harmony and also thinking of harmony as being uh linear rather than vertical you know in classical music where you you look at how things line up up and down and that's what happens but it's actually lines moving this way and if you think about how they're moving that's when you know if you picture like bach you know the information is really moving yeah left to right not up and down yeah uh so that really that really helped um, and at what point then did you get involved with richard lloyd i mentioned television earlier yeah so when i dropped out of grad school the job that i got was working in a rock club and i got sort of sucked into a rock band and we were um or i i didn't get sucked into a band but i got i got you know, punk music was really appealing to me because it felt like a way to be assertive and to get back to something that felt basic and visceral. And uh, we were playing one day and, and we knew that television rehearsed down the hall, but we were all kind of scared of that. They just seemed, they were kind of mean um, or seemed mean. Um, and one day somebody just banged on the door. We were listening, we were listening to a demo that somebody had recorded of us and somebody banged on the door and uh, we went and opened it up and it was Richard and he's like... Um, I'm not saying you guys are any good, but that, that demo sounds like shit. You're better than that. Show up tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Don't be late. And we're like, what's happening? And, we, you know, we were huge Marquee Moon. I mean, that was like one of the – that in New York, I mean, that yeah. Marquee Moon is like the Bible, you know. Um, I'm, just, so, I'm just really glad to hear television just are exactly as you would want them to oh, be. Oh, they were super scary. The yeah, it, yeah, super scary. And he used to – I mean, he used to put uh, – he, he, he's an amazing guy. Like, he would uh, – I, I I get really nervous and uh, so whenever whenever I, I track vocals, he would do um, uh, acupuncture on me, which is probably pretty, pretty sketchy because I don't know if the I don't know if he <laughs> I will not even go there. Did, you know disinfect the needles? But it, so I would like sing all the vocals that I sung on the album. I just had these needles all over my body and but he 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 was in, I mean he really woke me up and one of the things that he said. Uh, one of the things that he said that stuck with me is like, if you aren't completely over the moon, excited, psyched about what you're doing, no one else is ever going to care about it. And this whole idea of posturing or guessing at what other people like, like that, you, even if, even if you make a little money in the near term, like no one's going to care. And he, he was talking about when they made that first record, they would just roll around on the floor after they got done playing a song because they were so, uh, I almost cursed, they were so psyched <laughs> yeah. about just internally uh, excited about what they were doing. And they were so excited about what the Ramones were doing and these other groups that they were around. And That's quite profound, though, what he said to you, isn't it? Yeah, it was, it was really... I mean, he was, he was a brilliant guy and a brilliant guitarist. I mean, yeah. incredible. Um, and again, one of those people that, uh, you know, we were talking about Whitesnake at the top of the program, you know, to play guitar, you don't have to be a shredder. You know, you don't yeah. have to be Eddie Van Halen. There are other ways of playing guitar, yeah. especially if you want. Although to, he could shred, he oh, could he, do that he, too. Yeah, he could do all that. I mean, but, I but but if you want to integrate this music into an orchestra, right, you, exactly. need, you need to have different textures, don't he you? He was very disciplined. I mean, that was the thing. He could shred, but they were so disciplined in the yeah. way, and they refused to do any overdubs. I mean, nobody. Knows, I don't know if people know this, but there are literally no overdubs on that record, which is insane when you listen yeah. to it. It sounds like yeah. there's four or five guitarists. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I remember one time, you know, we, after our band started kind of disintegrated, we sort of became the Richard Lloyd band, but he hated keyboards. 
So the first, I think the first show I played a keyboard, and by the end, by the last show, we played one of the last shows at CBGB with him before it shut, it, it shut down, which was really magical. And I was on an unmarked thumb piano, just kind of sitting on stage, <laughs> no sound. But it was amazing to sit up there and see all these, you know, they were the first band to play there. Yeah. Um, and to feel like a connection to that spirit. And the spirit was so different than what I thought from the outside, you know, initially. Once you get in and actually talk to the people involved, that scene is very different than I thought it would be. Your next musical choice, William, uh, well, it's, it's, it's what we're doing tonight, actually, and this is a great idea, actually. Your, your idea was we would play some of your music, but actually tie it into the track, the tracks by other people that you've chosen and, right. and to, to sort of display the influence these things have had on you. So mm -hmm. I take it this track has some relationship to the One of Tricks yeah. Never track. And this is a track called Abattoir, which is a New York piece, a title for a piece of classical music <laughs> right. that you're going to get. Yeah, there's actually an Abattoir. We have a, a Abattoir on our block uh, where all of the um, the chickens for the Chinese food restaurants in our neighborhood are slaughtered um so basically my my children have learned about death through <laughs> chickens through the, through dead chickens Music from uh, William Brattell, and uh, that's uh, called Abattoir. That's from the Spiritual America album. Um, William, we've, we've talked about uh, your, your, your time in New York um, playing in, in punk bands and, and one thing and another, but when did you actually start, you know, composing in a way that you thought, right, this, this, is, this is what I'm doing hmm. all, all the time now. This is my thing. Well... I think the uh, fate sort of forced my hand with that because when I was in a band, um, I I blew out my voice and I developed this thing called dysphonia, where um, my vocal, basically my my um, vocal cords would cramp, and when they cramp, you can't make sound. So I had to quit quit the band and yeah. quit. And you did this singing, did you? Yeah, and I had to quit uh, quit my job. I quit everything and I moved back home to North Carolina. Oh, so this is a very serious thing. Yeah, it was a yeah. six months. I had to do speech therapy and wow. yeah. Um, and how does that just? I'm just curious. I mean, because there's lots of people listening to this probably in bands who sing without any training and so on. It's not a good idea. Also, I don't recommend. I don't recommend chain smoking okay. all day and drinking coffee yeah. all morning and drinking booze all night. Yeah, there, you know, there were a lot of contributing factors. Yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. So the voice you, you do damaged your throat in some some sort sort of a way that mm -hmm. you literally essentially that you know when you go into this when they when your throat is uh when your vocal cords are banging together over and over it's like an override that happens where your body says you know if you i'm just yeah. gonna lock this okay yeah um wow. and then it becomes almost a psychosomatic thing where you have to learn how to make it not do that so um, you must have wondered what you were going to do with yourself at that point well, I, yeah, I think in other ways it was sort of once I got back to North Carolina, you know, up in the, my parents had moved up in the mountains at that time. It's really beautiful, and there's a grand piano there. And I just sat down and I started playing the piano again instead of playing a you know crappy you know two chords on a crappy keyboard. I was I actually got into playing again, and I wrote this whole album of solo piano music, and gradually sort of came to the realization that it was time for me to learn how to incorporate all of these things. And did you have a, a, a a moment where you thought, I'm going to write something which is genre fluid, or that, did that just happen naturally? When you I mean, at that time, you know, there, there there was no support network at all for 
for doing things that didn't fit. Mm. You know, it it was if you did something weird it was either weird jazz or weird classical or weird rock there was no just weird you know and uh so for me i mean after my whole life changed when i lost my voice i my i couldn't hang out with the people that i hung out with before you know i i quit doing all this bad stuff that i was doing and so i basically just was at home and I, i couldn't really work um so it was very much of an internal exercise for me. So I wasn't, there was no labeling. It, it was like the f- the first time I was able to just step away from that. And I wasn't thinking about anyone who would ever listen to it. It was just something I was doing for myself, mm-hmm. um, which I've tried to kind of maintain that relationship with composition. I think I, I think my sanity starts to get rocky if I'm not doing exactly what I want to do artistically and I've learned that just I just have to start there and then figure out the rest of the shit around that <laughs> that might be the way to go actually you know so your next choice the track is called The Slaughterhouse and Sarah Kirkland Snyder whose work mm-hmm. I don't know tell me about Sarah she's Kirkland's she's part. one of my besties and uh she uh it's funny that we're talking about the Mohar Time Warp or this genre fluid thing because um Sarah and then Judd Greenstein and I started this genre fluid label called New Amsterdam, a nonprofit label in New York. Um, I, know, I know this label mostly for Rimful of Teeth. Exactly. Love, yeah. 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 They're one of my favorites as well. Um, and uh, it was just mainly a place for to put out our music because um, there was no place for it to exist. And, and this album, uh, Sarah's first album, Penelope, is one of my favorite records. And then Unremembered um, was really for me an inspiration for Spiritual America it's a similar size and scope, um, but it's it's extremely cohesive, extremely emotive, and it has that sense of the best the best rock or pop music where you put it on and you're in a mood, you're in a mode. It maintains that, but then it, it goes all these wonderful and adventurous places along the way. And what we do, I suggest we do, is we play the, your your track immediately after it, which is because the, the Sarah one is quite sure. short. Birds of Paradise follows it, right? And it's connected, is it? Uh, it, it is. Uh, maybe I'll talk about Birds of Paradise after. When, we, when we've heard yeah. it. Okay, here we go. of Paradise from uh, William Brattell who's with me in the studio tonight picking all the tunes. William's going to be part of uh, Sons from the Safe Harbour which takes place in Cork and William will be on this Sunday coming this Sunday coming at 2pm that's September the 15th and I'll tell you more about uh, Sons from the Safe Harbour later on in the programme. Um, William just just uh, listening to that there you commented on the guitar and this, in, this will illustrate to our listeners the kind of stuff you get up to. What was that guitar again? It was a fake MIDI guitar that was then put through a Leslie speaker that was recorded on an iPhone through the Leslie speaker and then put back into a machine with an overlaid real guitar on it. Okay. Now, if that's the way you operate, you, your your brain must be in a constant state of agitation, though, isn't it? Are I would you, say that, yeah. I'd say that's accurate. I mean, we mixed for 260 hours 
remix this record. That's not doesn't include tracking, and that doesn't even include stuff like this, which was just going to my friend's uh, place in L.A. and just like living in his garage for a week and just screwing around with guitars. But yeah, it's. But it's, even uh, even if you're not in studio, though, I mean, as a composer, I presume there's music happening in your head all I've the never time. Been that, I've no? never been that kind of. There's stuff happening in my head, but it's usually not. It's the pleasant when it's music, but. Um, I've never been somebody that hears. I don't like wake up and hear mm. things. I wake up and feel things. So you go to the studio then. The studio is your workplace, is it? Yeah, I think so. Or I mean, really, like it's what I. I can't write around other people. I can't write around my family. I can't write in New York. So I usually just go to a, a crazy, you know, a hotel somewhere or somebody's house or something. I wrote most of this record in my childhood bedroom with my yearbooks and. Um, I just like lock myself in a room and work for 14 hours a day or something and just, you know, just live in it. Because it's sort of like, for me, it's like um, working, especially with a record like this, you know, it, I was trying to emulate, uh, we'll get to Frank Ocean later, but I was listening a lot to uh, Blonde by Frank Ocean and the Kendrick Lamar records where they were really thinking on a macro and micro level and everything interrelated, the sounds interrelated, but there's also these like, there are di these different themes. I mean, almost like leitmotifs in, in opera, they're thinking on that level. But in order to be there, you really, it's like you have to go all the way down into the cave into this different environment and then just stay there and maintain awareness of everything. And I can't go, it takes me a while to get down okay. there. So I'm not like waking up and hearing something and be like, oh, that's great. Like it's, I got to be all the way in the cave with the right equipment on. And usually I have like a panic day where the first day I go away to work, I just, you know, I'm like, I don't know how to write music anymore. I hate this. Why am I doing this? And I just like watch the Terminator three times or something. And then, but then you wake up the next day and you're, the, you know, you're in the cave. And then you I, work. Wonder, I wonder if, if, if just, you know, if, if I was in a position where I was interviewing, I don't know, Beethoven or Stravinsky or something, would he be talking just the same as you? I don't think so. <laughs> but Beethoven didn't have to deal with as much shit, you know? Like, it, it, there's so many choices, you know? It's like an, there's an infinite palette. Like, I can do... I can record something with my iPhone. I can have a guitarist play. I got every vintage synthesizer. I mean, when we were mixing this out at uh, April Bass, uh, Justin Vernon's studio that he built, I mean, there's literally, you know, there's... Any any synthesizer, well, any guitar, and and you're faced with all these choices, so you got to have you got to be decisive. Well, yeah, well that's the thing. I guess that's yeah. what I meant earlier, talking about you being constantly in a state. Because if you can do anything, then when do you decide what not to do? If you know, what I think about? that's why you have to get into the place where you're answering no higher God, and you just have to get try to get out of the way and get in a flow state of non judgment, where you're just, um, you're it's like scratching this really, really deep itch as opposed to making something that you think anybody else is going to give a shit about. Mm. You know, I, I, that's the only place I can operate. Back to that advice from our man from yeah. television, really. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. And we, when we come back, you're going to play a track from, from Frank Ocean. I want to hear what you've got to say about that. This is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM. John Kelly here until nine o'clock. My guest tonight picking the tunes is the American composer William Brattell. We've had a great time in the first hour. More great music to come. But just to say that William will be part of Sounds from a Safe Harbour in Cork. He performs next Sunday uh, with his uh, Spiritual America, a collection of songs exploring secular spirituality, his own stuff, featuring guests. And the guests are the Metropolis Ensemble, um, Aaron Dyer from... 
you're going to help me with this because I play Buke, Buke and Gase, Buke on, and Gase on the yeah. show, but I'm never 100% sure I'm pronouncing the name correctly. Buke and Gase. Yeah. Buke and Gase, because yeah. it could be Buke and Gase, but it's Buke yeah. and Gase. Andy Stack, who's from uh, Y Oak, fine duo themselves. Yeah. And Sam Amadon, part of it as well. Terrific, yeah. terrific. So that's, that's this Sunday coming, 2 p.m., CIT, Cork School of Music, 2 p.m. And I'll let you know some of the other things that are happening at uh, Science from the Safe Harbour, which is a festival curated by the Desners, Bryce and Aaron, uh, Killian Murphy and uh, Enda Walsh and Mary Hickson. Yeah, so can't go wrong, really. So uh, before the break, William, we were talking about, you, you mentioned Frank Ocean. And uh, you, we were just talking through that, through that break there about how, you know, records like Frank Ocean's and... Kendrick Lamar's albums and so on. They're the kind of masterpieces that are being made at the moment. I think I think they're, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, they're like, they are the fifth symphonies of right now. They are the things that are redefining the way music can, can be put together on a large scale with both complexity and surface appeal. And yet, if you were, if you were to go out and, and listen to Pimp a Butterfly or Damn or those Kendrick Lamar albums, and you listen to it once or half listen to it, you might think this is just another hip hop record with a lot of references to, you know, language and, mm-hmm. and mofo this and mofo that all over the place. And yet you're missing the you're missing it if you don't listen to it. Really listen to it. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I mean, I think there's also I mean, well, with Kendrick, uh, you know, I think there's a level of flow there that's pretty phenomenal oh, yeah. and the production value is pretty phenomenal, but certainly the I mean, part of what to me is so remarkable about these records is the, the bi-level nature of them. And it's not that the artists are, um, the artists are feel this need to pummel you with how intelligent what they're doing is, yeah. you know, I think they're very, there, there's so much self-confidence there. And I, you know, in the, in the few uh, interviews that Frank Ocean has done, he's very clear about that. Like I know, I know that there are many levels this this is working on. You know, I know that there's numerology in here. I know that there's all kinds of secret coding, all this stuff. Um, but he's confident enough in the work where he, you know, he. You said it's you like know, the Frank Ocean album is like a three dimensional object. It's it is. It's three D. I mean, there's all the you know there are all these things. It's it split perfectly in the middle, and the track in the middle is night nights and then in the middle right in the middle of nights it switched from day to night at the exact center point of the record and then you know things like that which i'm not saying that makes it good in and of itself but i think that attention to detail and the thoughtfulness and you know he spends a long time on his records yeah it's like finnegan's wake or something actually when you start getting into it but you want to we're going to play a track from the frank ocean album which one do you want want i want to play white ferrari because so when i was working maybe we can play that and go straight into the strange asylum uh my track after that when i was i was up in massachusetts uh working on the strange asylum is the last song that I wrote from the record and I did something I don't remember what the last number was it's like 140 versions of it it you know it's just driving me crazy and uh and I was listening to Blonde over and over during that time and kind of became you know when you start to like something too much and you're like well I, I'm not going to ever make anything like this so why am I yeah. <laughs> and I and one night I just got fed up and I just had a, a couple glasses of bourbon and and I had a conversation with Frank I just start you know got emotional and like how how are you making these decisions? What are you doing? Frank, Frank wasn't in the room. Frank, well, he, he was right. kind of his, okay. His, uh, that that'll be the bourbon. His spectral William. form. His spectral form is in the room, <laughs> and um, and you know he 
I imagined him whispering, you have to get closer. And I was like, what? You know, that sort of came into my head. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And and I listened to this track, um, White Ferrari. That, that's what I was listening to. And there's a spot at the end of this where everything just clears out. And it's a moment where you think somebody's going to go big. And instead, it's, it's a not even very well recorded acoustic guitar. What sounds like an air conditioner. What sounds like a glass being dropped. And somebody's singing way too close to the microphone very, very quietly. And it was so incredibly intimate. And I realized like that that was the drama. All the, the that meta information from being that close and that intimate drew you in to this new incredible space. And so in the middle of, of Strange Asylum, I tried to do the same thing, right? I just pulled out everything. Instead of trying to get dramatic, I pulled out. I have another iPhone recording in there I have a very intimate guitar and everything just gets quiet and really really close and that kind of turned out to be the answer and that's the first time I had ever thought about doing that kind of thing compositionally so in a moment strange asylum from your own album uh, spiritual america uh, but first white ferrari from blonde from frank ocean bad luck to talk on these rides mine on the road your dilated eyes Watch the clouds float White Ferrari Had a good That's right, called Strange Asylum from William Brattell, who's with me in studio. And before that, uh, Frank Ocean's uh, White Ferrari from the album Blonde. William's with me picking the tracks tonight. It's great the way those tracks go together, don't they? You know, they just, they just, you know, because they're coming from the same kind of a place. I, I, that makes me happy. Well, but they are. <laughs> yeah. but, and again, you were describing to me at the, at the end that the, the, what you did with the saxophone on that is, you know, somebody's playing into, into, a, into a piano. And, yeah, uh, we had yeah. the the piano miking, and we were trying to use the mic in front of the saxophone, and it just was sounding a little too good. So we <laughs> instead had him head over head over to the piano and play into there. Which I think, if you got enough stuff recorded really well that sounds great, then you can get away with yeah, you know, screwing around a little bit. One of the things reading about your music, William, and uh, things you've said about it over the years, we've talked about the genre fluid thing earlier. But stylistic bias, no stylistic bias seems to be another kind of a watchword or three words uh, about what you do. No stylistic bias. And what, is that, what does that mean exactly? I think it's that, that little voice in your head. You know, there's the, there's the emotional impulse of whether or not you like something. And then there's the voice in your head that tells you whether or not you're supposed to like it or mm. not. And I think as a composer... I can love hair metal and I can make things that don't sound like hair metal, even if that's an influence. Mm -hmm. But it's sort of like trusting the more animalistic part of yourself to be attracted to what it's attracted to without judgment. And I think part of it is, you know, the the reasons these stylistic bias creeps up, I think, get pretty dark pretty quick you know it starts the best case scenario is sort of like this elitist thing and worst case it you get into imperialism and a lot of mm. messy cultural stuff um 
Exactly. And even just on a more less significant level, I guess, we were talking a moment ago about just sounds. Mm-hmm. And we all have our biases against sounds. And I think right. certain sounds, and I think that's broken down now. Um, yeah. I, I mentioned to you that there were certain keyboard sounds and so on, which, you know, you, you hear them now all the time on records. That There was a period in my life where they were considered the naffest thing imaginable. They were gone. That, that, that particular keyboard. There was a time where you even have a keyboard on a stage. Well, well yeah. yeah. Well, that particular keyboard will never be yeah. used again. You know, now everybody right. wants one. Has anybody got an old such and such yeah, so yeah. I put on my record? But that's good, though, isn't it, that, 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 that those things have broken down like that and there's less, yeah. you know, prejudice and bias about it. Even things as not all that important as, as, as what instrument you tones, use. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, speaking of that, this, this uh, the song Beth Rest by Bon Iver, the, the last song on their, on their self-titled record, I remember hearing that keyboard for the first time and just thinking, like, you're not allowed to do that. Like, and, and, it, but it, but it was so, it was done completely without irony with complete earnestness. And, uh, it, it was really, really freeing. It also sort of was evocative of the church or something. It, it was just so freeing to hear that sound that had been sort of lost in Bruce Hornsby land for a long time. And, <laughs> And, and reclaimed, yeah. and and then subsequently Bruce Hornsby being reclaimed, exactly, and, yeah. and, uh, yeah. and you know the the song that we'll hear after that, my, my song Topaz, Topaz were the waves. When we were working on that, I kept on going back to that sound. I'm like, I I need something like this in this track. And finally, Zach said, you know, the keyboard's right behind you that we use. We could just use that. And so we ended up using the the keyboard from. Beth Rest in in uh, in the my a- track, the actual a, keyboard, yeah. the actual keyboard, which is a, a really nice full circle. But I think that idea of it's 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 not just about not having stylistic bias to me. It's it's like it's not having stylistic bias, but then also demanding a lot from yourself. Mm. You know, I think that it's not just as simple as saying, "Well, I like '80s stuff. Let's make an '80s thing." It's you know, it's like let's open up the sound world completely, but then also like really. Try try to push yourself to get way deep down at a certain level, and then and then push your craft and to try to execute something. Um, and is yeah. Bonnie Ver an important artist for you? Extremely. I mean, especially especially that track. I mean, that's a track that I probably listen to that song as much as any other song that that's come out in the last fifteen years or so. But I think that the thing about Justin, you know, knowing him a little bit now, um, there, there's this complete earnestness th- that he has and that extends into his more experimental uh pursuits and and thing you know and and uh and and the incredible cover that he does of um i can't make you love me by bonnie Ray. you know there's just a full embrace either way and as somebody who's struggled with that over my life you know struggled with um seeking shelter and feeling smarter by liking things that are weirder mm-hmm being around people that are wide open in that way is, is really inspiring to me, especially when they are just have an incredible le- level of musicianship to go along with that. So we're going to hear Beth Rest from Bonnie Ver, and then we're going to have a track from, from you, William, which is uh, Topaz, Were the Waves. Same keyboard in each, same mm-hmm. studio probably. Anyway, here yep. we go. Beth Rest, Bonnie Ver.
Topaz, Where the Waves from uh, William Brattell, before that Bonnie Vere, Beth and Rest, or Beth Stroke Rest from uh, Bonnie Vere. William Brattell, Spiritual America, we're hearing music from his album tonight, will be part of the Sounds from a Safe Harbour Festival. Uh, he's at the CIT Cork School of Music, 2pm Sunday 15th, that's next Sunday, this Sunday coming, sorry, this Sunday coming, uh, with special guests Metropolis Ensemble, Aaron Dyer from uh, Buchengays, um, Andy Stagg from Y Oak and Sam Amadon, all part of uh, uh, Williams' concert, Spiritual America. There's all sorts of other incredible things happening at uh, this particular festival. And check out all the dates on our website. And on Saturday the 14th at 2pm in Cork Opera House, uh, Don't Fear the Light features minimalist Dreamhouse Quartet, who are the Lebec sisters, Katya and Marielle, I think. Katya and Marielle Lebec, Bryce Desner and David Chalman. And they'll be performing the Irish premiere of works by Tom York, Steve Reich, Philip Glass, Bryce Desner and more. We'll have the links to all of those uh, all over the place. Don't miss Cork at the weekend. Um, Sons from a safe harbour. Uh, William, William's picking all the music tonight. William Brattell. Well, let's talk about jazz. Yeah. Um, you, you, you hinted earlier on that your classical studies were kind of uh, derailed a bit by, by the discovery of jazz. Yeah, they were waylaid. And, and what, what was what was the... Uh, what was the appeal as a musician that well, is? Well, I think that uh, w- one of the things is that uh, Strauss Strauss got up to the, the ninth, basically, and and uh, jazz just kind of keeps going. And for me... This, um, is, this is Richard Strauss. Richard yeah, Strauss, yeah. yeah. Um, not the other one. Not the other one. So I think the other one got up to like the fifth and sort of called it a day he just kept repeating himself (laughs) yeah at that point yeah um but i i think you know as i started listening to uh coltrane and and monk and um there was a uh the the way that uh, harmony was conceived and also the the complexity the rhythmic complexity was really uh, appealing to me um and just as a pianist um i i thought that the you know, listening to Monk, especially the, what I first got into with Monk was actually not his compositions, but it was seeing his uh, language through the prism of tunes that I knew in other contexts. Yeah. And um, th- this tune, Just a Gigolo, I actually originally knew. Uh, I know what you're going to say. From David Lee Roth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Van Halen again. Absolutely. Right. So, I mean, Van Halen, you know, Van Halen was one of those, uh, 1984. Um, it is incredible an incredible record you know the opening of it uh, with this incredibly dramatic keyboard solo and then you go in a jump and you know and then getting to know david lee roth from that and then he had this ridiculous version of just a gigolo which is how i knew that song and then to hear monk's version of it where you hear these clusters and there was something about the way that monk played that i felt like i was getting like you know, when, even when I hear Coltrane play, I feel like I get like 80% of the intended inf- information, which yeah. is really, really high. Yeah. With Monk, I feel like I get like 99% of what he's trying to say. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I can, I, I feel so much joy in what he's doing. And it feels like uh, a lot of people talk about his playing as being childlike. To to me, I, I feel like, um, to, to me, I, I feel like... Th- it is childlike, but but it's not juvenile. 
you know, it's playful in the same way that Mozart is playful, but it's but you can feel his entire personality in it. And Monk, well, he's kind of inexplicable, but you've done a good job. <laughs> Here's uh, just a jiggle of Thelonious Monk live at the five spot, I believe. Just a gigolo from uh, Thelonious Monk, William Bretell, with me in studio tonight, picking the tunes. We have time, we have time for just two more, I think, William. At this, at this rate of going, so we could keep going all night here. I yeah, should, I should probably mention. Well, I'll mention the gigs just before the, before the end. Um, you said earlier that um, you know, in the whole creative process about trusting to a higher god and so on. I wouldn't normally ask this, except for the fact you come from North Carolina and your background was was or I don't know, you know, was very religious and conservative. Do you still believe in that notion of a, a higher power in terms of creativity and, a, you know? I, I think I've, I've I, well, I do in terms of creativity, but I think I think of it much more in terms of flow state of not more, more in like a Buddhist sense of a flow state of non-judgment. So, you know, just getting out of the way of your own ideas. A um, flow state of non-judgment. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of like being in the now, isn't it? And but 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 the added, yeah. No, well, that's as much as I know about Buddhism. I yeah. Guess. yeah, yeah. I think it's, yeah, essentially just getting out of the way of of your own thoughts, and 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 relying on your craft to express what you're feeling. See, the idea of getting away from your getting out of the way of your own thoughts must be seems particularly difficult given what you do and how complex the music is that you make and all those. It's kind of a pain in the ass, yeah, to be honest with you. Those, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not like you just open your mouth and sing, you know, it all comes no. out, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, it, it's not easy, but I think, um, I think what's magical about it is whenever you figure out, you think you've figured out how to write music, it, then the game changes without you knowing it and you kind of have to start over and and that's really it's frustrating but it's really beautiful too you know by the end of a record you think well, i could just make another one right now and then personal crisis hits and then yeah. you build yourself back up you know yeah i mean then you have, you have somebody like prince who just basically never stopped making yeah. things <laughs> yeah how do you how do you you know, we, now we know how Prince operated. Yeah. I mean, how, do, how do you, what do you think I, about that? The fact that he just seems to have done I can't imagine it. I, I don't know how, he, I mean, there, look, you know, it's fun to say Mozart was a real person and, uh, you know, Col Coltrane was a real person. Like, I'm not sure Prince was, I'm not sure Prince was a real person. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's, a, you know, the my first exposure, so, um, you know, I didn't, Prince, Prince didn't make it in, into the dome where I grew up. Uh, you know, he, he was like, I just remember seeing a, one of his albums, I can't remember what album it was, where he's naked on the front. And he was my, naked, mom, he my was mom naked, just saying like, the front. that's trash. But like in a way that was like, it was like, it, it wasn't even like cool trash. You know, it wasn't like Motley Crue with a pentagram. And they, it, was, it was just like, what is it? I, I was just like, what is that? You know, and, um, and then when I was like, 16 um there was a girl in my school that had sex and she was a, a real good girl and she got it got out and she got in, in uh she got in trouble for it and i was like well why did you do that like what, what i know you don't even like that guy and she's like 
I just had to figure out what the hell Prince was talking about. I swear to God. And I was like, all right, I got to listen to this guy. I got to listen to this guy. And and I got into it. And then and since then, I mean, it's just, you know, there is something supernatural about what he can do. And maybe that's maybe that comes from just a single mindedness of focus and just going to the studio every day for 14 hours and then eating pancakes or playing basketball or whatever else he did. Beautiful ones from Prince. Now, your last, the last track, we're going to play one of yours, William, and we'll play the title track from your album, Spiritual America. And uh, before we do that, let's mention Cork one more time. This week on Sunday, you're uh, performing in Cork um, and you're going to perform some of the music we heard tonight because you're going to play Spiritual America. That's A lot good. of it, yeah. But, and it'll be, it'll, it's rearranged for your particular lineup mm -hmm. and your guests on the night, the Metro Metropolis Ensemble, Aaron Dyer, who's from Buke and Gase, um, Andy Stack from Y Oak, and Sam Amadon. And this is all part of the uh, Sounds from the Safe Harbour Festival. And it's put together by Bryce and Aaron Desner from the National, Killian Murphy, Enda Walsh, and Mary Hickson. The lineup this year, great lineup, John Hopkins. Richard, is John Hopkins going to go full techno bang or is he going to be lush and DJ set? Great. John Hopkins, Richard Reed Parry from the Arcade Fire. Yep. His uh, Quiet River, Chuck Douse's Swan Lake, Leslie Feist, um, Damien Rice, Quevin Oriola and Thomas Bartlett, whose new album is some, a thing of beauty. So I guess that's what they're going to be doing. And um, on Saturday, the day before William's gig, um, in Cork Opera House at 2pm Don't Fear the Light features minimalist Dreamhouse Quartet who are the Lebec sisters Katya and Maria Lebec with Bryce Desner and David Chalman and they will be performing the Irish premiere of works by Tom York of Radiohead Steve Reich Philip Glass Bryce Desner and more that's, that's impressive that's a good lineup. that's this week in Cork check your various websites for, for full details William thank you so much for coming in tonight wonderful I could, I could, to be here I could talk to you all night Maybe we will. Maybe I can hang out. <laughs> Let's. Well, your, your last track. Uh, we started with White Snake, and we went around all sorts of places. And yet, the, the delightful thing is, all this music is is connected, and it's all part of your your work. And you got you gave us some good stories, uh, particularly the last one. <laughs> so, uh, Spiritual America, the title track. Tell us a little bit about this, Wayne, before we play it. You know, I don't have too much to to say about this. It's sort of, it uh, it's the last track on the record as well, and uh, just sort of brings the the uh, narrative of the album to a close. But definitely, definitely highly influenced by Prince, as as you'll hear on the verses. William, thanks very much for coming. Thank in. you. Thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast of Mystery Train with John Kelly. Mystery Train hits the rails every Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on 96 to 99 RTE Lyric FM.